That was Listen Brother by Inca Mars, featuring lyrics written by our today's guest, Richard Human, who is joining us today from Woodstock. Hi, Richard. Hi, guys. How are you? Isabella and Rebecca, it's very nice to uh, talk to you. So, Rebecca, we'll introduce you in just a moment. Okay. Welcome to our 14th segment of iArt New York on Radio Free Brooklyn, brought to you by Isabella Gola and Rebecca Major. My name is Isabella, and I'm a visual artist and visual arts and design curator at the Polish Cultural Institute New York. And Rebecca Major is a visual artist studying Master's in Art History program at Hunter College and is currently doing curatorial internship at the Jewish Museum. And we are happy to bring you this 14th segment of iArt New York, which is a talk show on art scene around the Big Apple, in which we bring special guests and their voices to our critical insight about the contemporary art from New York and around the U.S. We have a special guest with us today who is joining us in this very, very strange time, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, Rebecca will just say a few words to introduce you, Richard. Okay, great. So Richard Human is a New York-based artist working in several mediums, video, installation, and computer-generated visual works such as AR, which is augmented reality. He is also a poet and the lyricist for the band American Nomads. His work has been exhibited at Pace University's Digital Gallery in New York City, the Karachi Biennial in Pakistan in 2017, and his recent project, the Augmented Reality Fine Art at the High Line through the Gallery 9 in Chelsea, New York, among others. So, so I wanted to delve into discussing your work because there's a lot to unpack. First and foremost, one observation that I had was that there's an underlying current and an interest that you seem to return to, which is a which are literary references. Uh, perhaps we can start with discussing your recent project that I just mentioned a moment ago, the augmented reality exhibition over the High Line, in which you superimpose a constellation system over our existing one, of course, uh, viewable through a smartphone device. The work is titled Ascension that suggests the sky. And in the work, your point of departure is the work of the writer Joseph Conrad, specifically his novel, A Hero with a Thousand Faces. So I wanted to ask you if you could discuss this uh, really large project and how that piece of writing specifically served as your main reference point for the work and making the work. Okay, great. Well, um, Ascension... uh began, I guess, about 2016. I was coming back from a, a show in Boston on the train with a curator, and we talked about uh, that the Venice Biennale was coming up in 2017. And I had been in the Venice Biennale in 2003 um, with a large installation um, at Palazzo Zorzi. And so we're like, you know, the, the Venice Biennale is one of the largest and oldest Biennales in the world, and it uh, carries a great deal of cachet to it. So we started thinking about what can be done, like what can we do? So um, I had worked with AR only once before during Miami Basel uh, the previous year, 2015. And what I liked about it was the fact that there are no rules per se, meaning the rules of gravity or the rules that we live with every single day don't exist because it's this 
total fantasy, you know, uh, paradigm that you're able to work within. Mm-hmm. And so I'm calling right now from from Woodstock. I I'm a, I live in Brooklyn. I live and work in Brooklyn. I have a loft there and my studio for for you know 30 years. And but during this COVID-19 time, I'm in Woodstock. I'm a weekender up here. I I, I bought a house in 1995. It's a long time ago. And um, so, but the reason I tie that in is because in the middle of like thinking about what to do, what can I propose? I went on the back deck one night and looked up and, and there's the star system, mm. you know, the, the constellations. And, you know, from a scientific point of view, there are, you know, stars in the sky, but we know the constellations as these storylines of heroes and villains and giants and hunters and animals. And so I started thinking, like, let me take that concept, which has been with us for, you know, 3,000 years, d- dating back to the Greeks and probably before, and start applying uh, a more modern mythology to it. Mm-hmm. And the mythology I decided to do was take something from the beginning of the 20th century, which is World War One. I. I combined World War One and World War Two, and then worked my way up through highlights of, you know, um, the Western culture of the 20th century and placed 12 constellations in the sky based on my idea of what and how I could represent those. And with the Conrad book, that was more just about the, so it's not directly tied in other than the fact the hero with a thousand faces means that, you know, heroes have been with us forever and the same, the same character can have a thousand faces, whether it's, in a movie or in a book, but basically the attributes, the characteristics are the same. And that's how that was inspirational to me. I see. So it's really the title of the Joseph Conrad novel that, that you felt was specific to your piece, that it spoke poetically in a, in a way to rename these millennia old constellations that, as you mentioned, have been named through uh, the Greek times and maybe earlier, such as Hydra, Orion, Pegasus, all of those. uh... Exactly, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly, yes. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, you know. And and so I I developed, again, so I used the Conrad book as more of this idea of the hero has been with us forever, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're in the the age of the anti-hero, but still it's the hero. And... I just wanted to apply these parts of the 20th century from, you know, it's, it's got a timeline. I'm generally a non-narrative type of artist, although I'm a narrative writer in terms of my writing and my poetry and, and my lyricist uh, work that I do. But uh, as an artist, I'm a non-narrative. But I decided to like try to put a narrative on top of this project. So it starts in the beginning of the 20th century and ends it ends at September uh, 11th, 2001. That's when that's when that particular piece ends. But I've been expanding it uh, because after the Venice Biennale were premiered, uh, it premiered during the Biennale at um, Palazzo Mora on the Strada Nova. And uh, we got funding for it, which is uh, fantastic, and put it all over the, the sky in Venice. And then mm. I ended up doing the project and expanding it to um, uh, Seoul, Korea, Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year. Yeah, yeah, and, and we wanted to a, definitely a, ask you about that. And just for our viewers, yeah. uh, to give a little bit of um, visual for what Ascension <clears throat> looks like, you, you created images of, let's say, a butterfly with a pair of boxing gloves, 
uh, the yes, Statue exactly. of Liberty appears, um, an image of a two-headed dog. And then yes. these are overlaid over existing astronomical constellations, as we mentioned. So. Well, actually, I created my own in there. I didn't even I didn't work with reality at all. I just okay. decided not to. So the, the, the stars that are floating within there, I took the basic, you know, I looked, obviously, did research about it and realized many of the constellations have anywhere from three to 12 stars or something, and, you know, mm-hmm. generally yeah, speaking. Right. And, and if, I took the, the general idea of that. Yeah. And if I asked you, let's say, to unpack one of those that I just mentioned, like, uh, let's say the butterfly wearing a pair of boxing gloves, how yeah. would how would you describe that? And what is the uh, your personal like point of reference for that? Okay, so image? I'll, 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 yeah, I'll step back a little bit. So basically, it's kind of like the two headed dogs or the two do- the two the dogs of war, right? So it's mm. like World War One, World War Two. And then within it, I kind of reached back again to like this renaissance idea of like images have representation and they're metaphors as well so there's you've got like these two german dogs one is a doberman and the other one is a german shepherd and it's put on the body of a beagle and the beagle like sounds the alarm and this is the 20th century kicking off and you know to tie into where we stand right now we we know that world war one also was a big factor Mm -hmm. in the 1918 Spanish flu that killed 70 million people or so. And, and we're kind of reliving that again 100 years later, which is, you know, insane mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but so I would take these images and, and after after the world wars, we have what's, you know, the, the shining city on the hill. But I, I called it the shining suburb on the hill, <clears throat> which is, um, you know, it, it, the, the image itself is of like the nuclear cloud of uh, Hiroshima. And I created like a hill out of that and put buildings on its side inside of that. So each one has kind of a play to it. Mm -hmm. And it's really outside my normal realm of working. My work is very minimal. Uh, Literature does play a great deal within my work, but it's like it's object oriented for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the same river twice. We, you know, we'll talk about that. I'm sure at some point. Yeah, it is it's, interesting. It's a departure for me. It is interesting that this piece really speaks on history and politics, and that you're really interested in how humans have shaped history and where we are in relation to that history using but, these and how symbols. We, what we consider important as well, right? So I'm choosing highlights that I feel were important. So you've got the butterfly bee, is what you talked about. That's actually. It represents Muhammad Ali, which is, you know, oh, right. so each I'm taking I'm taking these different characters throughout the 20th century from Elvis Presley to the Beatles. And the Beatles is uh, the four headed monster, which is an octopus with eight legs. And and it's got like a, a revolver head to it. So it, it, each part of this kind of represents different highlights or metaphors within the character that I'm building here. Mm-hmm. Now, they're pretty layered and obscure narrative qualities they have obscure narrative qualities that you are privy to in a sense and so hearing you speak about them i hope that our listeners can imagine them because we've seen the images clearly we can't show you images but you know hearing you speak about them gives a different access than uh, simply seeing them because well first of all i've never experienced it at night looking into the sky and holding my phone up i saw them online so it's so funny how we can experience this piece in many different ways but um, certainly hearing you unpack the, the meaning behind the images and where you 
develop them is is very, uh, I think, important for this piece. No, I was going to say, like, although it's obscure or, or enigmatic, it's kind of not like once you're in it, let's just say the one for the Beatles, right, which is the, the four-headed monster, the octopus. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes to like this uh, Ringo Starr said, you know, he, he said other bands were great, but we were monsters. So I kind of took that little quote and it's got four heads and there's flowers and each flower represents one of the Beatles. And the pistol itself is like the pivotal moment in, the, in the, their album Revolver. So it's a revolver on top of this. So it's kind of added together all these things. That's the pivotal moment that the Beatles were the old Beatles to the new Beatles is the moment in time. I see. So there's all these specific. Yeah. So and and in a way, historically speaking, the Beatles were a phenomenon, right? Like they influenced a generation. And just for our listeners, the image is an octopus, as Richard described. And in the center of it is a, an image of a pistol aimed at the viewer. So it's it's quite yeah. almost like a threatening image to look down a barrel of a pistol. And then on the sides, like you mentioned, there's flowers. It's a really cool image. Like, you know, but I'm not sure I would have been able to get to that no, point. No, 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 but no. But now that you mention right. all of it, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Each one of the pieces in Ascension has like that kind of layering that, you know, there would be a moment of, oh, yes, now I get it. You know, the Elvis Presley piece or the the final piece is the Silver Tower, which represents the Twin Towers. And it's a it's a it's a bird of, of it's a dove, but with a, a war head on it, like the, a, a bird of war on top of it. So, you know, each again, and it's like this falling down tower of coins is what it is. Mm. So, again, I tried to be playful and I tried to kind of reach back to the Renaissance style where things have meaning to it, right? Like, again, metaphors within the visual imagery is what I tried to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I wanted to clarify, so the Tiger Horse project, which you created for the 2017 Venice Biennial, which was uh, the first, uh, I assume, rendering of the Ascension, just to give our uh, listeners a visual of how people could interact uh, with these images. And there was an application that uh, was available on an iPod that you could download, uh, created by Avery. Uh, the, the, fir- the first app. one was Membit. Yes, Membit. It's app. a free application that you could download to your iPhone or iPad. And they were they were one of the sponsors and worked closely with us in the Venice Biennale and in Korea as well. Uh, and then now uh, they've expanded. They call themselves Airy, although Membit still exists. And it's a three-dimensional platform that they're creating as well. So they're expanding beyond uh, what they had before. Now that it's a three, you can create three-dimensional AR using their, their product. So I was looking at the octopus and the gun, a blended image, which uh, starked me. And I couldn't help myself but also think about the video games characters that some of these uh, forms evoke. Are you, were you thinking about that? Be- because I actually no, find... I, I'm- some references. I, mi- I missed the video game. I, um, <laughs> I probably just missed the curve of that. I, I'm, I'm too old to really have, you know, gone into it the way somebody even five years younger <clears throat> than I would have. So video games are not and have not been a part of my life. Um, we're yeah. going to get to the piece in Seoul, Korea sure. in a moment because it's very related to this piece. The, the technical question I have is, if I'm not in Seoul, Korea, or if I'm not in Venice, or if I'm not on the High Line, can I experience this piece anywhere? Because it is, um, you know, it's on my smartphone, or is it location specific? Okay, so the, the answer is it's location specific, but there are ways to view it online, uh, not 
like the in real life, but you can view images of it and um, you know see how it's planted. But you know, you have to be there. That the whole concept yes, is it's like course. viewing any other artwork. Okay, yeah, is yeah. That you go to see it exactly. And that also makes the Seoul Korea piece so much more unique in a way because up till now you and the person that you were with or maybe only just you have experienced it so far unless maybe some farmers in the area it's a very remote area and very difficult to access even by people who live there right well, it's almost it's almost impossible to access because we uh it's actually north of seoul so i've i've been to seoul many times and i call korea almost like a second home the way I, I feel that way about Finland and I feel that way about Venice as well, having lived in Venice, Italy. But we went up, we were putting Ascension in uh, over the Han River in, in Hangang Art Park in Seoul. And while we were there, I had a film crew with me. Uh, they, we've been doing a documentary about my art for the past couple of years. And we're like, well, since we're here, let's go to the border between North and South Korea, which I had planned, you know, six, eight months ahead of time. And I created the tiger horse to place over the border between North and South Korea. So we went up there and I had a film crew with me and we actually lived up there. We had to uh, we had to give up our passports uh, at the border and we lived in a small town, literally a stone's throw from the electrified fence, mm -hmm. which I have actually walked before um, when I was living there about five years ago. And so I we went out into this rice field and. And, and put the peace between North and South Korea. And as we're doing it, and as we're being filmed, my, my crew started disappearing. And I was like, what's going on? Because the director is supposed to come up and, and direct me at a certain point. And I look back and they're gone. And what happened was, is the South Korean army came and started taking the film crew one by one into a van. We, we got into this big van. They came and got me and I, they threw me into the van and I'm in there. My whole crew was in the van. And they brought us back to the army barracks and um, proceeded to delete uh, everything we shot. You, uh, yes, I, I read an interview in which you had described that you had switched the files. Yes, we and switched so the you... SD cards. Yeah, yeah we, we had been warned ahead of time that this might happen to us. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, SD cards that had like images on it of flowers and, you know, and we ended up in the van. There's screaming going on and yelling and we're going back to the army base and they, they, the guys pulled them out of the cameras and they swapped them. So when we got back to the army base, they deleted all the wrong stuff. And the correct information was uploaded to the AP, uh, the director's member of the AP, Associated Press. Mm -hmm. And But when we came back to New York, everything was here. And we, ha we have been working on the documentary since. That That's part of the story of it. So the images that you actually had recorded, you managed to upload to cloud yeah, exactly. In, in AP. Yeah, cloud server, yeah. And that was yep. um, that was the footage that was supposed to premiere in October, last October, November at MoMA, and it's now postponed? It was already, it was getting postponed just for the editing of it, which takes forever, by the way. And so we were going to shoot for <clears throat> this springtime, but now who knows what's going on. So, I, mean, I have um, no idea. Would you talk a little bit about your so-called romance with Korea. Well, I, you talk about the economy of nature and technology that amuses you um, and that it's seamless uh, in North Korea. And uh, it's, it's like 70 years of, you know, of separation. And there is many, many bodies buried underground in the place, five million of military and civilian casualties. How, what drawed you to come to Korea in the first place? 
Yeah, well, for me, it was I was showing with the gallery um, in I, I, you know, you fight your whole life to get into a gallery. And in 1998, I was picked up by a, a, a very good gallery in New York that had people in it, like Nam June Pike showed there, and Shigeko Kubota, Robert Morris. So which, there were some big which names. Which was the gallery? It was called Lance Fung Gallery. Oh, that's and, what um, yeah. it's not it's not uh, there anymore. But so there, um, part of that were, was a movement called the uh, the Fluxus movement, which Nam June Pike, Yoko Ono was part of. In the gallery was tied into Fluxus, and uh, the director of Samji Space in Seoul. This is 1998. Uh, basically, wanted to throw kind of like this uh, Fluxus event where um, American artists and Korean artists got together to to work on a project. And so we flew over there and spent a month in Korea and and at a museum show. We did the show, and then I went back later on, and I I ended up. Um, doing a residency at the Gyeonggi Creation Center, which is on an island called Daebudo in the Yellow Sea. And so I started, I, then I went back again for like a Biennale. So it just happened this way. You know, I lived for three months on Daebudo and I got to really immerse myself into the culture mm-hmm. and, and find it to be a fascinating culture uh, in, in Korea. So what... I felt the same way about, about Finland as well. I've been you know, mm. back and forth to Finland. I was in Helsinki three times last year. I travel a great deal for my art. Which I mean, we know that the that. conflict is still ongoing, obviously. And just recently, I was reading on actually um, this article on New York Times on March 20th came out. North Korea was testing its missiles. They launched yeah. two. They un- fired un- one today. Right, an unidentified uh, short-range ballistic missiles off of East Coast. Yeah. yeah. And. That was like 255 miles to the northeast. So are you following the politics closely and this centuries of conflict between the two countries? And how are you relating? What draws you to that divide between those two countries? It's a a very complicated situation, to say the least, right? So when I was living on Daebudo, uh, which is southwest of Seoul, uh, in the Yellow Sea, and not that far from the North Korean border. And we, one day while we were there, uh, there, there are speakers everywhere. And when the speakers go off and they're you know, yelling in Korean through the speakers, we had to find out what was going on. And what was going on was that we were being evacuated, first being put into bomb shelters and evacuated because uh, North Korea was threatening to launch missiles. And I wasn't that far from the island years ago where they launched missiles and killed uh, fishermen. I think 50 fishermen died in one of the, one oh of the islands up there. And so it was like a real, it's a real threat. On the other hand, the crazy thing is just like, you know, we live in New York City, right? Um, we're, and, you know, with New York City, when I moved here in, in, in the 80s, it was a rough, rough city to be in. And, you know, you kind of just got used to it. You don't really think about it all that much. And with somebody from maybe like the Midwest would say, I'm never going to New York because it's so, you know, crime is so rampant. When I was living in Korea, we, we heard less about the politics there than I do in America. It was just part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this was just how it was. And I was actually there when, when uh, <clears throat> Kim Jong-il died. I was, I was there about three weeks in my, into my three-month residency when he died. And I remember, like, going down to the store, which we had to walk like a mile down to the store to get beer and food. And there were people gathered around a TV set there and it just was announced that he had, he died and people were taking the day off drinking. And I thought, well, are they celebrating? But they weren't, 
they were in mourning because even though the the dictator of North Korea was like their enemy, he was still considered to be a Korean to them. Right. So and there was an, actually a day of mourning that, in South Korea. That's really it. powerful. So uh, would you uh, speak about those symbols and more in depth, the tiger and the horse? The tiger is yeah, a so symbol of South Korea and the white-winged horse is a symbol for the North Korea. And uh, exactly. then, then the two countries with the shared language, culture and history walk side by side. Is there yeah, anything so, so new what, besides the desire to overcome these, uh, you know, the, the conflict and and the disparity between the two? What are you trying to say besides the desire well, in, in the, in, for in them to reunite? Case, so the, the basically it's the head of the tiger, again, as you mentioned, the symbol for South Korea and the head of the white winged horse. And they're on the body of magpies, two magpies that are tied together by a rope. And the rope is loosely bound. And the mm. rope represents the DMZ, right? The demilitarization zone, 38th parallel. Mm. And the magpies are birds that are prevalent to the con for, to the uh, peninsula. And uh, they fly back and forth. There are no laws, no borders for these magpies that go back and forth. And so I thought a magpie was like this perfect symbol to represent, like, you know, the, the, the freedom and the will to, to finally connect the two parts of the peninsula together and and uh so that's what it was again it's it, it, it's symbolic it, it's symbology so i have a quick but you know the, yeah i just sure, I, I just want to like backtrack a tiny little bit so you're okay. there on the 38th parallel in the demilitarized zone and the image a symbol that you've just described with the magpies it's on your smartphone and you look up is that what you mean yes. when you say you placed it in the sky so the first that's time, correct. yeah, it, that, that's how you place it, right? So these are placed through, uh, you, you line this up for me as an artist, I create everything in the computer and, and, you know, using photography and imagery, and I have a whole system I've developed. And then it resides, uh, I then transfer to my iPhone, we, we get into this rice paddy, I lift up the phone and click, and it's positioned there based on the mountain behind it, but it leaves a GPS marker in the center of that rice paddy. Oh, so right now, similar to like a, a, where you can go to see Spiral Jetty in the Salt Lake, right? You can mm. take the trip from Seoul, fly from New York all the way to Seoul, 16 hours, take a trip up to this area, which is, uh, again, it's, it's, um, it's called the Civilian Control Zone right on the DMZ. And you'd have to give up your passport. You'd have to get permission to go see it. It's like the ultimate uh, travel <laughs> piece for art. Then you have to walk into a rice paddy and then hold up your phone and you could see the piece floating. That's, that's what Got it would it. take to do it. Now, the locals, because you mentioned there's rice paddies, so there's farmers. They could see it. Yes. With a smartphone. Absolutely. And, and we stayed at it. Uh, we rented basically kind of like a, an apartment my whole film crew was there and we had a guide and a driver and cooks and they uh you know so you you'd be able to stay there because they do allow people to stay there artists can stay there sometimes or writers it's not a residency per se but they're they're kind of familiar with certain people mostly koreans going there we were the first americans ever to actually go there what is the name of the closest town to there where you were staying at, to this rice paddy location? To be honest, I don't know. I believe <laughs> it's called Chirwan uh -huh. is the area where I was. It was, it, was quite, it was quite a hike. It wasn't close to anything. It was a, 
I mean, quite a hike to get there yeah. in, in the car with the crew and everybody. So yeah. if somebody did want to spent... go, they would go to your website and then there's an X and Y access. A- absolutely. Like, yeah, how you, to get you'd there be able specifically. To, yeah, you'd be able to see like where it is. It'll be in the movie as well, in the documentary. Mm-hmm. And um, we had also spent, which I had done uh, twice previously, but, you know, there are seven tunnels that run between North and South Korea. And you can go into those tunnels. You, you know, don a miner's hat and you can walk down into the tunnels that connect between North and South. The North Koreans had dug them out probably as late, you know, uh, far back as the 50s to be able, if they wanted to plan an invasion on Seoul, and they could literally send like 30,000 men through these tunnels Mm. to attack South (laughs) Korea. And you can walk through them. And I've done it a number of times. Oh, my God. Well, they're Um, not uh, open for the public, are they, to just walk through? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some that are open for the public and some that are not. I've been to the one that's open to the public, which is more of like a tourist thing, closer to Seoul. But the one that the two others I've been at are, are less open to the public, meaning you so not too many people go down there. If you were to go into the tunnel and walk on the other side, you would be met with a customs officer? No, no, you're, you know, it's, it's a it's a wall, bulletproof glass. Right. It doesn't them. actually so go you through. You walk all the way down to the border. Yes, you That's walk all so the way down to the border. Interesting. It's so interesting. So how often do and you go? very claustrophobic. But I do have one more technical question and this is and then we sure. can move on because I just want to clarify for our listeners that the augmented reality piece is different than the documentary about the tiger horse. So just want to clarify that the documentary that was tiger horse is the title of the documentary. Exactly. And it's also the title of the augmented reality piece that where you hold up your phone in the rice paddy and the DMZ. Right. So what we did, and the the director, uh, his name is Jesse Strauch, and uh, we went in and we interviewed people. I sat at the table with a a monk who's an artist that I met in 2012 at the Tewa River Festival, and which I had a big piece in, like a 70 foot piece in there. And I, you know, I met with my friend uh, Sukyun Han and and So Young. The people I interviewed people about what it's like to be an artist in Korea living under these conditions, you know, and does it affect them? We talked about the idea of unity because to South Koreans, unity is very important with the North. They even have railroad systems that go right to the border. They have a train station there that's just waiting for it to open up Mm. because if they opened up North Korea, they have access to all of Asia and quite honestly, access to Europe. There could be a high-speed train that runs from North, you know, North and South Korea all the way to Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just wow. to clarify, the Ascensions is the piece that you showed at the Venice Biennial in Correct. 2017. 17. And the Tiger Horse is the title of the documentary. And, and one of, the pieces, the, one of yeah. the pieces that was implemented, actually, that was recorded in, in uh, Korea. Okay. Correct. Uh, That's correct. How often do you go to Korea and do you have sponsors to go there? Uh, for different projects. How does that work? Well, yeah, so for me, like I was saying, Korea is just one of the places. I've been to Korea now four or five times uh, for a residency exhibition. I've done, I think, two or three museum shows there, as well as a couple of festivals, like art festivals. And every time I've gone, I've been sponsored uh, through either through... um, Never through private funding, but either through art funding, museum funding, or, um, you know, the festival funding. I lived in Taiwan for a month. I did an exhibition, actually two or three in Taiwan, and 
I've done three museum shows in Finland and London. I've shown in Cape Town and Berlin. I've, I've literally shown all over and I travel a great deal. I'm here right now. I, I should be prepping for my show in Dubai, but the Dubai show got canceled on April 8th. Well, so, right. So you wear many hats. And they're all funded. Yeah, they're all funded. And I don't, right. I don't uh, have the resources personally not to do something on a level like this. The, some of these shows are fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars to put together on just on my end alone. But they have funding from, you know, various sources there, corporate as well as uh, national funding right. for projects. Can you talk about the inaugural Biennale in Karachi, Pakistan in 2017? You, you represented the USA on that Biennale yeah. in October, November uh, with the project Trust alongside Yoko Ono that represented Nutopia and Igor Mitorai from Poland. You created this spectacular 60 feet long by 40 feet wide sculpture titled The Tide of Credence, which was inspired by the same river twice installation. And the yeah. curators of the Biennale knew that the, the work you decided to make was, was just a larger version of what you did in Hudson Valley, right, in Woodstock, creating a, a replica scale model of a Hudson River. And you uh, recreated in this one, in Tide of Credence, you, you recreated an excerpt of a river that uh, the Indus River that runs through the Correct. entire country of Pakistan. And you mentioned yep. that literature has big influence in your practice, that those uh, two disciplines, li literature and visual arts, are in dialectical relationship. They are like two ends of one continuum. They are not opposing each other. So in this one, I see very much, uh, you know, the influence of a narrative and the storytelling on the actual piece, the sculpture piece, because you asked through emails and uh, the Biennale Committee, you asked uh, residents, uh, citizens of Pakistan to write stories to you about their lives and their hopes, uh, their dreams about the future yeah. of Pakistan, and then submit these uh, stories in their native language, Urdu, um, to, uh, to you, to send them to you. And then you took all the writing, you printed it out, you cut it up and word by word and then place them, like literally place them in a river shape that was then cut in, you know, into the sculpture. Uh, would you talk about the influence of the narrative there and the storytelling and the formation of the piece, how long it, it lasted to collect all these stories? How did you come up with the concept itself, you know, with the narratives from uh, Pakistanis? Yeah, so for me... It originally it came. There was a there's a gallery in Hudson, New York, um, called CR10, massive, massive space, and um, they asked me to do a, a, a show there. It was part of a group exhibition of just a few artists, and um, so I thought of this idea, you, you know, from the Heraclitus quote, you know, no man uh, can step into the same river twice because it's not the same river and he's not the same man, right? So I thought of this idea and it represented me because I grew up about halfway between Hudson, New York and New York City, a very small town called Stony Point, New York. And so I knew from the first time that I was seven, when I was seven years old, the first time I went to New York, that this is where I wanted to live. I wanted to live in New York. And so I tried to think about this kind of concept that would the river itself that I grew up on the Hudson River, our house overlooked the Hudson in Stony Point, and the river was always this very important power, powerful source for me. 
And so I would like go to the edge of the river and wish that I would because like jump into the tide it would float me down to New York. And there, you know, the Hudson is uh, uh, the tide runs up and down. So it seemed like this kind of perfect metaphor for me to work with. And I took the Hudson River, which I routed out pieces like 40 feet long, and then filled it with all kinds of text, things that I read when I was younger that expanded my worldview. Uh, my mother was a reader, my father, my sister, my brother, and my whole family, we, you know, we read our whole lives. We'd go to the library since we were four. And, and um, so I was reading all different books, and I decided to take the words from the books, not the books themselves. I would never destroy a book. But I took words, printed them out on regular paper, and cut them up and filled the Hudson River with things from Dostoevsky or Turgenev or Shakespeare, or Kurt Vonnegut, with all the books, again, that I read as a, as a child or in my teens that finally opened my worldview to have the courage to move to New York City. And I put this piece up in Hudson, and, and uh, you know, the people from the Biennale Committee had looked at my site when they were, like, looking for the artists to work with from the United States, and they were like, can you maybe do something along this vein? And I said, well... You know, I looked and I saw, you know, the Indus River runs from the top of Pakistan all the way down. I thought, wow, that, you know, we could create this, but bigger. And they gave me this massive room in, in Karachi to work with. And so I just used the maximum space I could, which is like, you know, a 40 foot by 60 foot piece mm -hmm. and created the entire river similar to what I did. It's routed. It's cut with a router. Actually, the river itself is routed out, and then the letters are filled into it. So, um, just to explain to our to our listeners, the it's an installation floor piece. So it's kind of yes. like a platform. And, and when you mentioned routing, you indented the topographical shape contour of the river into this yes. platform that was painted black, and then in the those grooves you filled it with printouts of these stories from Pakistani civilians. Was people, it... people from the, from the art, from all different walks of life as well. And basically stories of what it was like, what it's like to live there and, and you know, what, what hopes they have for the future. I mean, you know, Pakistan is a beautiful country. It's sometimes rough and tumble as well. I'm, you know, when I was there, I got, I you know, sponsorship from from uh, the U.S. Embassy and the U.N. to go there to represent the United States. But my whole time there, I had to have a guard. Uh, one carried AK-47, the other carried a 45. My driver, wow. and I couldn't go anywhere without without you know. That, that was at a residency or in the Bayani? No, that that was at, that was for the Biennale. Yeah. Oh my god. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, so they you know that was part of the requirement that mm -hmm. I you know was constantly. They'd put me in the back of a car. They'd put the shades on the sides so nobody could see. And guy carried 45. The guards, the whole and alley was surrounded by people with, with guns. And But, you know, the thing is, once you got inside the and alley in the gates, <clears throat> it felt like the Venice and alley or any other and alley. It right, was incredible. Right. And my, my trip to Pakistan was one of the, the highlight trips of my entire life. I not only spent time in Karachi creating the work and, and you know, the opening, and it was amazing. I mean, Gulji was the, the chief curator. He's a friend of mine for many years. And, and all the people there, it was it's just amazing. Uh, the energy, the warmth, and the love that they gave everybody. Mm -hmm. And then I part of the UN, the payment, you know, to be sponsored, I had to fly. I flew up to Islamabad, and I lectured there and, and did uh, art lectures for three days in Islamabad and worked my way up to the foothills of the Himalayas and you know 
is crazy scenes. I mean, we're hiking through the, the foothills up there and overlooking Islamabad and there was a tiger loose. So again, mm. I had guards with, you know, guns, but they're like, you have to watch out for this tiger that's been killing people. Well, it okay. sounds like the tiger like, would every... be the least of your worries. It sounds like the people <laughs> know, are the real <laughs> threat there. So I was yeah. close to the Afghani border. I mean, you know, Peshawar, but again, it's like the people I met in Islamabad, they're, mm -hmm. they're from the Peshawar tribe and, and, uh, a Pushtun, I think. And anyway, uh, yeah, Pushtun tribe. And they're like, you're a member now. You're like a member of this tribe. If any anybody ever tries to harm you, we will get them. I'm like, okay. And they're good friends to this day. Like, they're oh. all good friends to this day. You know? That's so amazing. And uh, it's incredible. I mean, there were a couple of times I, I thought, well, things could go down. You know, I really felt that way. The stories that you've expressed to us have given us a certain clarity about your work that you don't shy away from difficult histories and also in effect try to find a remedy like your search is for a solution or a remedy to these ongoing turmoils in the world and right it, right it's a recognition of it and more from like an artistic point of view though that sounds lame but it's like i'm trying to like take in the, the you know the quality of like human beings in this emotions and thoughts and intellect and you know, there's a, you know, there's a great divide everywhere. My work is not political, right? It's not about politics, but you can't do anything in today's world without delving somewhat into politics. You know? And it also seems I mean, like those ideas and solutions that you find in your work, you probably would not have arrived at those same conclusions and ways to implement them in your work if you hadn't spent time physically in the space and relating to the people there. Absolutely. And that goes for Korea, that goes for Pakistan, that goes for anywhere, even like when I lived in Venice, Italy. I mean, it, it's not on the same level in terms of the conflict in the border zone, but living in Venice for, for months allowed, in a, having gone back 20 times, right? It's one of the most important cities in the world, in the art world. And yeah, I feel like I'm part of it. And, and part of that has rubbed off on me, right? It's just, it, it, it becomes part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And all the places I've traveled to, I feel that way. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hack this up, but I, I think it's like Mark Twain. It's like the cure for prejudice is travel, right? Mm -hmm. And it's true. Right. And, to get and, out uh, of the safety zone, get out of the what we're used to and to expose ourselves in a physical relationship to other cultures is so important. I mean, I think now travel, given our current situation, is less of an option for people, yeah. but that idea of how to be able to really try to understand the other. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Other other cultures. And, you know, I, again, I've been very lucky. And, uh, you know, from, again, from Abu Dhabi to Spain, and, you know, everywhere. And, you know, what I try not to do, and here's part of the thing as an artist, it's important to allow this to become part of your being. But I don't necessarily want to always relate to if I'm doing a show in Spain about Spain or mm -hmm. a show in, you know, the only time I've ever done that is during the residency in, in uh, Daebudo because I felt like I just, I really wanted to immerse myself in that Korean culture and having known Nam Jun Pike very, very well and being friends with him. I wanted, you know, you can't go anywhere in Korea with me at least and not think about Nam Jun Pike because every, there's video everywhere, like everywhere you look, it's like this high tech. It's it's kind of like Blade Runner there in mm. a certain way, you know, five thousand mm. year old culture mixed with the most modern high tech that you can, you know, fathom. But uh, so that's the only time I ever did that was like 
mostly though, I just kind of just let it seep into who I am and it might come out three years later or 10 years later or never, mm-hmm. you know, the, the travel experience. Right. So uh, you declared that you are not a political artist. And I, I've read a few commentary uh, reviews on uh, your identity as an artist. And obviously you wear many different hats. You are a visual artist, lyricist, a, a writer, a published poet. And the word conceptualism, one of the isms that, that I came across reading about you was conceptual art. Yes. You've been noted as being one of the leading neoconceptual artists of the scene today. That I would people... I, I I disagree with that. I would never say that. Somebody had written that about me, but you know, I think he, I think he mentioned like one of the first neo conceptual artists in Brooklyn on the scene or something like that. Right. That you was know? the Ethan uh, Petit. Ethan Petit. Owner yes. Yeah. Petit. Of, uh, um, he said that you are probably the first uh, artist in Williamsburg, but I wanted to talk about that uh, time also in Williamsburg. Yeah. He's referring to the Northern Brooklyn installation art as a movement, which was autonomy and immersion yes. called. And then I found this like Google spreadsheet that kind of lists the different collectives and movements that emerged in like end of 80s, beginning of 90s of the time. So would you speak about that a little bit? And how did you find yourself that? Because you were called a, a leading conceptual artist of like Northern Brooklyn installation art and that your installation and in environmental art, the word env- environmental was also used, predates by a half a decade, the forceful movement of installation art that occurred in Williamsburg from in 1989 into the 90s. That was after you moved to Brooklyn, uh, right? Because you moved in uh, 1985. Yeah, 85. Yeah. Well, for me, I actually came down here when I first moved to Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not the way it is today, right? It it was very, like, sparse and kind of like mean streets or taxi driver, right? So you had this, like, really kind of electric energy around, dangerous as well. I mean, everybody I know was held up at gunpoint, including me, right? At right. one point or another, and apartments robbed. But there was this kind of like, in a certain way, it was like when you moved there, okay, you were serious about being an artist because you had to be there. Things are a little bit different now. Now, you know, you can be an artist kind of many different places in the world. It's a much more one world situation than it was back then. And, but so I came down as a painter. I was still painting from my college days. And I was doing like not color field paintings, but I was. You know, basically trying to apply different colors on canvases, but I was delving a little bit into conceptualism inside the the language of painting, right, um, in the vernacular of painting. But what changed me was I went to uh, see Jonathan Borofsky. He's an artist from uh, from California, and he had this retrospect at the Whitney Museum. And I walked in, and I went with a couple other friends, and I hated it so much that I left. I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. And then, but somehow it, like, stuck in my head. I went back again and again and again and again. And by the end of it, I was completely transformed. Mm. And, I mean, I had always been a, a, a huge fan of Donald Judd minimalism, you know, conceptualism and the historical terms uh, also for me were, were very important. So what well, Borofsky did, I didn't like the way he created his work. There was like papers thrown all over the place and things that would just drive me insane as an artist. But he developed this counting system, one to infinity. 
And he just wrote on paper, one, two, three, four. And he was up at this point to like 7,752. He'd been doing it for like decades. And along with this counting system that he kept adding to every day, when he created a piece, people would say, okay, the Tiger Horse 2018, right? He would be like the Tiger Horse at 7,747,222. Like, so he would date his work within his own counting system. Mm -hmm. And that concept changed everything for me. Mm -hmm. And it completely altered the way I thought about art. And so my art is kind of like this amalgamation between conceptualism, minimalism, and I don't know. I'm not familiar with his work. No, honestly, he kind of faded away after that. He's a very nice guy. Ended up meeting him years later, Paula Cooper. He has a peace of mind. It's funny, right? But but it's like uh, he kind of faded it. That was like this, his apex. And so, so many people he's, he's been left what, behind. A bit. Yeah. Well, can you pronounce his name again? Can you spell it for us? Yeah, Jonathan Borofsky. Borofsky. Spelling might be a different okay. thing. Well, we B-O-R-O-S-K-Y. Yeah. Okay, Borofsky. So Borofsky's yeah. idea, I'm thinking about how it applies to your work, and I'm just going to take a stab at it here. But I see this idea of like not conforming or being free to leave behind increments and methodologies that, you know, the artist may or may not have to apply in in their work. So this idea that Borofsky had his own counting system, which did not coincide with our dating system, right? Like this way we date and number. I mean, certainly it was within some form of structure that we can understand because he was counting from one to you know one two three in that sequence but within that you know he still discarded what he felt was unnecessary and this idea of not discarding for the sake of discarding but why and what does it do and how does it transform the work and how does it free up the artist and um, it's very that's interesting that you say that because in a way creating your own structure on something right putting your own structure within something does free you in a way it frees you to work within a new paradigm mm-hmm. and like if you don't have any structure as an artist I, I'm not a person who could paint the same thing over and over or create the same sculpture over and over I couldn't I, I it would just it would be the end for me and um, but you do have to have some structure that you're applying like who you are what you are what are the what's your foundation and what are the walls that you're building so you do you know whether you create it yourself or you're willing to exist within somebody else's, but it's very important to have as an artist. And right. Borofsky created his own. And then after that, I mean, I was a kid. I moved to New York like directly after college. And so I spent a year and a half developing my own dating system until I realized, what the hell am I doing? I'm crazy, you know, but that's when you're young, you're, you yeah. know, you're but I see, you know, copying other people to, mm-hmm. to go further. I that. see that, however, in your work, Ascension, in the sense that you're applying your own mythologies and symbolism over, you know, the shared space of the constellations. But within that, you still take and discard within your own concept. Exactly. And, and even my other things, too, kind of exist that way. The the first, I mean, I, I had shown, you know, when I first got here in, two, in, in, in Brooklyn in 1985, I showed at a little gallery called Minor Injury. It was real, Mo Bach was the, was the guy who founded it. And funny enough, I had dinner with him all those years later in Korea in 2001, right? Mo has passed away since. But, um, but, any, but it took me a long time to fight to get into better galleries. And my first solo show came years later and, but my, the piece that kind of 
I would say broke me a, a bit was a, a piece I did called Psycho Killer, which is from the Talking Heads song. And I, I translated Psycho Killer into Morse code. Mm-hmm. And that, too, is a piece that lies on the floor in these huge blocks. That piece is also like 20 by 30 feet or something. And you could I had a decoder that you could then read, you know, the dots and the dashes to spell out parts of the song from some psycho killer. Mm-hmm. I got permission from David Byrne. I met I met David at an opening at the MoMA. And I was like, hey, I just got off of this big solo show. Can I? And he's like, absolutely. He wrote me a letter and. And and since David also, he bought three of my pieces, I've been to his house. I mean, I don't know him, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I know him, but I'm just saying mm-hmm. things tie together, you know? That's so amazing. A really great guy, really great guy. Yeah, yeah uh, I've heard some great stories. He um, He's a New Yorker, right? I mean, he, he also has made artwork, and then, of course, he's made that recent Broadway show, which was a musical a friend of mine it's saw. It's on right now, yeah. It's on right now. And it's so, funny, I, I ran into him on the streets in, in uh, Soho about maybe a month ago. He was riding his bike. He almost literally ran into me, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. and uh, on his bike. And uh, But I didn't say who I was because he bought a piece of mine called Human Sandpaper. My last name is Human. Mm. And Gene Poole put on this, he put on this Crest Hardware show every year. And I made the image of myself that I printed on sandpaper. And I was like, you know, Human Sandpaper, mm-hmm. warning, do not rub the wrong way. I guess David liked that. He bought a couple of those. But I didn't like, I didn't, when I ran into him like three weeks ago or whatever, I didn't say, hey, I'm the psycho killer guy, you know, the human sandpaper. I just, typical New Yorker just. I'm sure he like recognized you. I mean, away. he must meet a lot of people, but um, maybe he's more of a face person than a name person. Could be. But it Could just. Be. He's um, very talented, very talented, and the talking heads are, you know. They're amazing. One of a kind and band. we're so lucky as yeah, New Yorkers totally. that he is here. I mean, I don't know if he's here right now <laughs> during well, this pandemic. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So I, I've been. Uh, uh, I've been trying to g- grasp the idea of um, uh, of the concept, which you in a way turn into an object. So you are cre- you are drawing. You always have a source, narrative, idea, um, a, a song or a piece of history, collective or, or personal, a memory, and and uh, that becomes in a way your tool in creating the simplified form. Um, it, it, and would you, would you say that that would be the right? Say that. Um, yeah, say, that's say, very say important that, again. that you said that. No, it's very important that you say like simplified because right. I you have this idea that comes sometimes as an epiphany, right? Sometimes you have to struggle and you, you don't get it, and sometimes you're just on the subway and all of a sudden the whole thing just appears in your brain, right, as a completed image almost. And then I fight very hard to take away the unnecessary elements of it. So when I talked about minimalism before, I'm not a minimalist. That's not the reason my work is simplistically presented in maybe black or white or something. But it's like I'm stripping away all the unnecessary things. I'm not gilding a lily as they say, right? right? I want to strip it down to its most basic core part. And sometimes they are like uh, experiences. Uh, Very quickly, I have a piece called Live Every Day in Truth, uh, which is, I, have, I wear my hair long now, but I used to have it in a long braid. And it's a video of my braid swinging back and forth in slow motion like a pendulum of a clock. And that's the, all the piece is. It's just a slow motion video of my braid swinging back and forth like a pendulum. And right. in it, you know, the, the kernel is my, my mom had passed away, uh, you know, right before this exhibition. And in my family, there's, there was a, 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 a grandfather clock. 
that whenever somebody died in my family, the clock would just wind down and we would just let it wind down. And then maybe a year later or two years later, you would walk by it and somebody had, you know, wound the clock up again. It's, it's just like this strange tradition. And it kind of represented like when the clock is winding again that, you know, the pain is somehow dissipated enough that you can kind of go on with your life. And that was kind of a tribute to that. It's an inside story, but mm-hmm. it's a universal story in a, in a certain way as well. It's like the pendulum of our own lives. So I was talking about the narratives, the backstories, which you then solidify, reduce, or materialize into forms, into objects, into materials. Would you say that the objectification of a language would be a term that would apply to your work? Um, I found this term in uh, Mark, Mark Daniel Cohen referred oh, to Mark, it yeah, yeah. Mark Daniel uh, Cohen, yeah. in 99 yeah. in conjunction with an exhibition with Codes, the art and sea of codes in the art of Richard Human at Lance Fong right, that Gallery. Was, that was, was your the, first yeah. gallery. So he used this term object, objectified language. So confronting our symbolic codes as simple and, and physical And that's, you know, the objective of it. And they were seen more like vehicles, like conveyances to be seen through rather than ends in themselves. So your objects are conveyances of meaning. I've been thinking about it and, you know, the conceptual art, which I also think about every time, you know, I see Joseph Kozuth or Ai Weiwei. And it's not about words or really uh, semantics. Those are signifiers or signified you are the maker of meaning. The responsibility of the art is to create a meaning. So would you say that as a maker of the meaning, there is a lot of responsibility placed on the object, on the form, which has to be convincing. It has to invite into the essence, you know, into the meaning. So I'm curious about how you think about these uh, terms in in terms of like objectifying the language. Let's start with the last thing you said, because I agree with it 100% which is as a conceptual artist, as a minimalist-based artist, it's very important to me that the materials that I use invite you in. It's very good that you say that because I always consider materials to be a doorway to my work, right? And the way I present it, because if you can have this, which happens to me sometimes. Possibly I'm, I'm looking at something that I don't like or that it's shoddily constructed or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you may be something really smart in there or something, but you have to want me to walk through the door to get it. And that those materials you used or the way you presented it is not inviting to me. So your idea is now lost behind the materials with me, right? And I always try to make something, sometimes I succeed, sometimes I fail, I'm sure, like with anything. But I try to make it inviting enough that to make you interested enough to care to think about my idea. And that's that's what I try to do with my work in terms of material wise. You know, Um, for as far as Mark Daniel Cohen is concerned, Mark is very, very smart guy, great writer, great art critic, great thinker. And uh, I believe either head of or high up in like the Nietzsche Society out of Switzerland or something. And and. you know, what he was talking about then was specifically geared toward the codes at the time, the Morse code, and I was doing binary code work. And, and uh, so, yeah, he was like, for him, the codes were a way of, of getting through, like you would get through the sound of the Morse code to get to the meaning of what the message is. I think that's what he was talking about. But that does apply metaphorically to what we're talking about as well, whether it's material or concept. 
Right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, Lisa uh, Streitfield in Sculpture Magazine yeah. in 2009 wrote about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, through, she through was the also coding. part of the right. Society, too. I think she got her PhD right. uh, out of the place in Switzerland as well. Yeah. So she was also talking about um, the coding, the codification of the meaning in your work and the, the systems. She was talking also in terms of constellations in, in a symbolical way, the systems of coding, and then the subconscious that you project on it. So blending the personal and the, the universal, would you say that you find by blending in the collective and the personal histories, you, you invent your own coding system? And then is the veneer of the popular culture a vehicle to communicate that personal message? Uh, no, not the for viewers. me. The only time it was was with Ascension, right? Because that was right. a one-off, uh, you know. But the, the the rest of my work is is about the personal and and um, universal in a way. And if if you as a viewer view my work as too personal, then I failed, right? Um, right, cause because there is no then access. It's, then it's about me. Then it's not meant to be about me. That that swinging braid is, you know, you don't need to know the story about the the grandfather clock and my mother passing away to try to understand that this is about time passing for human beings, right? And and so that's so the work is is about that. I've had times when it's been very very personal, right? I've done, I've taken chances in my exploration of work. One is a piece called Testimonial, where I had this is back in 2000. I had people call in to a, uh, an answering machine that was not, I had, it was off premises and people, you know, told the answering machine what they thought about me to this day. I, I don't know who left these messages because I had everything trans transcribed and then I had actors read it. It's a sound installation. And that was very personal, but I don't tend to do only personal work. It's about the personal versus, you know, universal mm. It's what most of my work I would say is about. So, including the same river twice and all the stuff like that. And uh, I also wanted to talk about the element of the spiritual there. Would you find that moment of suspension and the blending of the collective and personal applied into these, uh, you know, larger networks, whether familiar or invented? Uh, it, it, it is a temporal uh, journey that you're taking a viewer on. And there's also like an idea about control, you know, the idea of controlling your narrative and pr transgressing it through the medium of your work into this virtual cosmos. It, it, are you playing with those terms? Are you thinking about that? Well, you know, it's funny. Okay, so everything you said I can agree on with, right? But when I'm creating, I don't think about those terms. No, it's like, it's like writing poetry. I, I'm letting it happen, right? And I'm controlling it. To, I am a control freak in life, but I'm letting it flow in a certain way within the construct of the paradigm that I work in. But I don't throw words around during my creation process. You know, it's funny because you talk about Mark Daniel Cohn, and he, he reviewed one of my shows, and, you know, he, he had this revelation in the interview, in the, in the review, and I was like, oh, damn, he nailed it. I didn't even realize what I was doing, right? So often the role of the artist is, you know, the role of the artist is to explore. You're, you're uh, an explorer. So I don't always sit back and think about the, the vernacular, the lexicon in terms of what I'm doing. It's kind of this kind of, you know, full-blown, innate 
exploration process is what I'm doing based on my previous experiences, based on what I've learned, based on my history, based on everything at that moment in time. It'd be like asking a, a baseball pitcher, you know, how he gets the ball over the plate, just takes the ball in his hand, he throws it at 95 miles an hour, right? But if he had to think about the, the leather on the ball and what's inside of it in the seams and how to hold this and how to, you, you end up, it becomes too, it becomes too self-aware. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ever be too self-aware as an artist. I mm-hmm. want to be able to trust my gut to move forward. That's as a really, well as my brain. really beautiful way of describing how an artist can't overthink and you have to be with the flow. <laughs> I tied it, I tied it full circle because I pitched when I was a kid. You ah. know, and the expression was like, don't aim the ball. I play. I actually played football up until only five years ago mm-hmm. in Central Park, but I played hardball as a kid. Mm-hmm. And like the thing was like, don't aim the ball, just throw it. Like mm-hmm. that's why I'm drawing that reference. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Like mm-hmm. I like that. You thought about it, you'd end up throwing it into the stands or into the dirt. You just, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you try to aim it, you end up just throwing. You have to trust your body. You have to trust your muscle memory and in, in art, your intellectual memory as well. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take this moment to make a station identification. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. Thanks for listening. Your support keeps us going, so please visit the website and um, make a small donation, make a large donation, whatever you can. Um, I wanted to just kind of um, switch gears and ask you about the, because you're also the lyricist to the band American Nomads. Yes. And your wife, Susan Darmiento, is the lead singer, and I've heard her sing. She's, an She's one of the lead singers, yes, yeah. And I believe your brother and nephew are also in the band. Yeah, it's a family That's affair. Right. So, okay, yeah. Nomad. Oh, go ahead. I'll, no, uh, yeah, I just I'll wanted to compliment up. your wife's voice. She has an amazing voice. Yeah, I love it. Really, oh, thank you. But well-trained, but also just a natural, so really great. So go on, yeah. Well, I'll let her know that. And yes, she does. I, I, I met her years ago. She was actually in Walter's band years ago called Metropolis. Walter's one of the lead singers uh, in the band, and he writes the music and with Dante DeLemo. So I'll, I'll introduce the band in a second. But um, so anyway, she was on stage at the Lone Star, and I, I saw her, and I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was instantly in love with her. And this was back then. And the drummer from that band is also the drummer from Nomads, Joe Conoscenti, his name is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but Nomads is, uh, um, it's been a great, great experience. Uh, you you played Listen Brother before, which is Enica Mars, which is also George LaGrange from American Nomads, Susan, doing the vocals. And I wrote the lyrics to that as a concept album. That's like a true, you know, a Tommy the Who or Pink Floyd type of album. Mm-hmm. And that tells, I won't go into the details, but it's a, it's a long, detailed <laughs> album mm-hmm. kind of thing. Did you write the lyrics to 1969, which came out last year? No, 1969 is, so there's, there are a couple, no, the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm. There are a couple ways that songs get created with American Nomads, and that is, um, I'll write lyrics to 10, 20, 30, and I throw them at the guys, right? And then sometimes the song comes back. Dark Thoughts of Mayhem, Revelation's Gonna Come, Dogtooth Band. I'd say 80% of the songs are strictly my lyrics. And then the other way is Walter will come up with an idea. And then I'll go up. We live in the firehouse. Walter has, you know, he owns the firehouse in Brooklyn. And I live there. I've been living there for 30 years in an old firehouse. And we'll go upstairs around the piano. And he's like, I have this idea. You know, here are some lyrics and fill in the blanks, you know. 
And that's another way that it happened. So 1969 was one of those situations. He's mm. like, you know, the 50th anniversary of Woodstock's coming up, and we were performing at the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, the band was, and let's write a song specifically for this event. Mm. And he had this idea, and I, you know, worked with him. So some of his, some of his lyrics and some of mine. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of brought it up just so that I can, uh, I don't know, it's just my own... Uh interest in the subject but uh in sharp contrast to last year being the 50th anniversary of the summer of love 1969 this year is the 50th anniversary to the kent state university shootings in ohio which occurred on may 4th 1970 and uh, that was the day that the u.s national guard went onto the campus and opened fire onto a mass gathering of students killing four and wounding nine um, clearly, I'm, I'm sure you, you won't be writing about that, or you might, but um, no. I mean, to, uh, I just I mean, wanted uh, to. Crosby, Stills, and Young wrote it. They wrote Ten Soldiers," so that's they did an amazing job to show the anguish and the pain of, with their song. Yeah, and in fact, they came out with that song two weeks after that event, and um, reading about how quickly artists responded to. Yeah, that event, and it was as a way to try to resolve and deal with the issues back then. Think about the enormity of that, of, of you know, National Guard firing upon students and killing them yeah. in America, right? Yeah. So uh, just, monumental, just but you know, I see some parallels. Like in the summer of '69, no one could have imagined that just months later, within a year, something as tragic as um, the shootings on the campus would have happened. And likewise, it's 12 months ago in 2019, we couldn't have imagined that we would be here in this pandemic. So I think there's yeah. just a really chilling parallels with this 50-year anniversary. So that, that brings me around to something that we had discussed before the show of like, how how do we discuss the pandemic and how is it affecting us in our lives today? And you mentioned that you're out of town, which is probably good to be able to remove yourself from the anxiety of, you know, being in in the city in this time. Um, I mean, it's still up here, to be honest, because I have to go shopping. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's it's. Uh, it's all around. I mean, people keep their distance up here. We, you have to converge upon shopping centers to get food or toilet paper, which is the commodity of the, mm-hmm. of the summer. And, um, but it's, it's, it's not as dire. I mean, I'm only, I'm only up here like seven days so far. So I was still in the middle of it in Brooklyn and I have to head back of course to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So I'll be back in it. But right now there is a bit of a respite from the anxiety, as you say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm staring out of my backyard and there are deer in the backyard. I have a couple of acres up here in the woods, so it doesn't feel the same. But you mm-hmm. can't escape the news and you can't no. escape what's going on and, and all over the world, right? right. So you can't. And people contact me from everywhere and mm-hmm. they're in lockdown. My friends in Venice, my, all over, are in lo- my friends in Helsinki, everywhere. They're in lockdown the way we are right now. I've become a news junkie. Like for me personally, first of all, I I think I was in denial and I thought this would be a month thing or two month thing. We all did. And, you know, listening to the news and really by becoming a news junkie, it's a way to kind of uh, feel out the parameters and of what's really going on and what's what to expect for the future. And it's a kind of feeling around a dark room, you know, like you have to feel Mm. out your surroundings. That's what I've been uh, doing for the past two weeks. And since this hit, or maybe it's been a little more than that, 
that said, I think I was a little bit in denial, and now I'm seeing the full scope of how long this will actually take. Of course, no one really knows, but certainly it's going to be longer than two months. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going to, well, the, the ramifications economically, you know, alone are going to take a year to sort out. And then there's other, obviously, the health and the people. Today, they had said that up to 200,000 Americans could die from this, you know, mm-hmm. and it's crazy. Yeah. And just for our um, listeners, today is March 30th. So we're speaking March 30th. Um, and today, the USS, um, was it the Comfort or the just docked yeah. on the west side? And they're also in the the and next to Mount Sinai in Central Park, they're also setting up outdoor tents for relief for extra patients. Yeah, I mean, after so I was in New York, you know, looking out my window at September 11th. Right. Mm-hmm. I actually saw the second plane hit in real life. Wow. Right. The first plane oh, wow. uh, was on television, flipped the TV on and saw that image. And then I actually saw the second plane get hit in real, in real life, in front of my very eyes, right? Because, uh, you know, we, as you know, we, we live by the East River and overlooking Manhattan. And um, so, you know, back then we had fighter planes going over New York. New York was quiet. Everything was shut down. Uh, you couldn't go below 14th Street. There were um, military guarding below 14th. Mm-hmm. And I had an art studio in Soho at that time. And for the first couple of days, I couldn't even get into my art studio. You had to show proof of residency not just like a studio and that lasted for a while so i mean there was this feeling but it was just new york and it was contained and it was difficult and it was gut-wrenching but this is the whole world right now and there's something about it the enormity of it beyond belief it's hard to comprehend right and new york actually is the epicenter of it all i mean yes today's right now it's rolling it's gonna be a rolling epicenter right i mean that's how it seems to be right? right hopefully we'll get out of it. I mean, it's very dark humor. Just let's do the numbers. It's like March 30th, I checked the last data at like noon, and there were just in New York State, 631.55 cases confirmed and 36,221 in the metropolitan area of New York City and 790 deaths in New York City. I mean, uh, and 755,000 cases confirmed in, you know, in the whole world. I mean, this really has an apocalyptic dimension yeah. right now. It and does, we all feel it. When I wake up every day, I feel like maybe I'm waking up from a nightmare. Finally, maybe this is it. And then I have notifications on my phone and I see the reality and it's getting you know worse and worse every day and i've been thinking about like all of the tools all of the new rituals that i have created over the last weeks that has impacted change in my life my paths my mm-hmm. uh, daily activities but what about like right now we are thinking about the next you know the next day the next place we need to get in the next thing we need to get to protect ourselves what about the long term? I wonder, like, exactly. how do you map out your your uh, your daily? Are you thinking about long term? How do you cope? Because I try to just I, stay I, honestly, grounded, you know, just to stay grounded. I'm the same. I'm trying to keep. I'm trying to keep my focus on small things. I mean, honestly, creating art right now is not part of what I'm doing for the past two weeks, which is really rare for me because I'm constantly writing and thinking and. 
it's it's just this happened after September 11th also because you put things in perspective and it's like you have to worry about you know possibly where the next meal's coming from or everything I had as an artist and I'm an artist full time this is what I do and everything is shut down all right. exhibitions every, there's no yeah, money there's I was nothing. just reading an article and talking about the Met as an example they are really cutting back like really really cutting like wartime this is they, they've been correlating this event to before World War II, like when the United States was still in a depression. It was like the wartime budgets where people were really, really severely cutting back. And I think a lot of other institutions, I believe in L.A., the, the Los Angeles County Museum is promising its workers uh, pay through May and then that's it. You know, so, like that, I mean, everybody is going to be laid off or. Yeah, I, I already know. I, so I know people, to be honest, um, I won't mention any names. I know people who have passed away from this. And mm. I know people who are oh. laid off out of work with no hope for the future. And right. I don't I, even myself, I have no idea what to do. Right. I mean, uh, you know, I own the house up here outright, you know, right. I, but so I have this is like the Alamo for me. But I used to joke. Like my house and property in Woodstock is the Alamo. When the world comes to an end, this is where I'll be. And it's like, I'm here. This is where I am right now. I never, I always thought it was going to be a joke. It's time to start that victory garden. Exactly. Sure. Because, uh, you know, growing your own food might, you know. (laughs) We're at that place. And and where do you go forward? I have no idea how to go forward. I have no idea how to plan anything. American Nomads, who we started talking about, their gigs have been canceled, uh, you know, and very important gigs that they were doing, including we talked about a, a summer tour in Europe. Yeah. gone my art show in dubai is gone they talked mm-hmm. about rescheduling for the fall but i don't see how that's possible i mean now th- th- that was like three weeks ago when they said a fall reschedule but who knows what's going to happen in the fall well um, so we're gonna we're we're like walking this fine line between the depression mm-hmm. another great depression and uh, uh you know a plague that's where we are mm-hmm. we're, we're right between a depression right and a plague so it's not just right worrying about the economy but it's also worrying about our loved ones and people that you may you know would have a hard time with this flu if they caught it right safety first we're thinking about resources do we have enough of food supplies masks or yeah exactly gloves disinfecting stuff Impossible, i've been making yeah. my own hand sanitizer at home from like aloe vera and and alcohol we went to the very crude you know basic human survival mechanism mode and that was such Isabella, a that had, shock. That, two, that's in two weeks right yeah. what happens i'm not yes. saying it's going to last two months but you we've gone from that to, in two weeks, right, and then where does it go from here? Right. Two months right. from now, right and now they're they're project, you know April's canceled, right? The entire month of April, so you're talking at least four weeks. Yeah, right. Maybe- Actually, the article was saying that April and springtime is usually fundraising time for museums and galleries and you know non for profit spaces, and that is all canceled, of course. And this event. Uh, let's just call it an event, a uh, prolonged event. But this event really yeah. will begin to separate the bigger institutions and the smaller ones. And even small museums are probably going to shudder from this. Like, it's not of something course. that they're going to be able to just weather and, you know, no. lay off a few people. It's bigger than that. No, because a lot of their benefactors also are losing money. Stock market plunged 8,000 points over the past couple of weeks. It may be up today 400 or down 800 tomorrow. 
but it's gone down. The the curve is down, you know, and, and people are not going to be willing to part with the money they have. Yeah. And also they're going to pump up the economy if that's necessary, but from what? I mean, we're already in debt. Like that's danger. Is that dangerous? Like I really would love to speak to an economist maybe because yeah, it doesn't I, I, sound like, <laughs> I just hope that that's a sustainable number. Can we promise to just shell out trillions of dollars? Is that even something that we can do? I mean, of course, this is a very big question and I'm not asking anybody if I, answer If it. I remember, and I don't, you know, I'm not a economic history buff, but I remember, you know, hearing this is what happened in Germany after World War One, And this is why they, you know, went into the depression they went into because they were printing money and money became worthless. And it almost seems like that's where we're getting to now, just in two weeks. So I can't imagine what's going to happen if this doesn't pass, assuming that it will, because apparently Wuhan right now, you know, is not reporting as many cases. You know, we exceeded China by quite a large number. Oh, yeah. But the, uh, the, the perspective of keeping this under control is giving some hope. Rescue package is going to be sustainable long term or is it going to be just like one time? They're negotiating that right now. They're already of $1,200 for each. Stimulus. Yeah, they are already yeah. working on the second stimulus uh, package. And yeah. there's all these uh, loan forgiveness programs for small businesses. Still, like, what's going to happen with the rent payments, you know, with, uh, well, with, all with of, student loans? No, like, all of these no things idea. that w we are worrying about, um, it, it seems like our president is more concerned, actually, about the, the economy rather than... Uh, you know, health and well, apparently, well-being. I mean, it, Defense Production Act. The military is not put I'm into not, action. I'm not going to. I don't want to hand to anything politically, but I'm going to say he just tweeted yesterday about how popular his his uh, five o'clock addresses are. That they're as popular as The Bachelor. So I don't know exactly what he's thinking at all about anything. Well, other I than heard himself. that the investments uh, are going down actually when he starts speaking. The way he crashes the yeah. market every day. The market, uh, actually, the curve of the market is going down when he begins speaking from his announcement of the state of national emergency. That Friday, 3 p.m. afternoon, the markets went down tremendously. People were scared. Of course. I'm listening to Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo on WNYC every day, and it seems like, you know, we are still short of the basic PTA gear for medical personnel. Yeah. And the Defense Production Act, he wants to keep it all in like uh, hands of businesses and open f market. Well, today, the, we the, need the, military the act. Today, we need a national action to distribute, to solve the supply problem. We need a distribution well, the, line. So we need to have those But they're walking a fine line. But the, the problem is that it's a, it's a party that has, and I've voted for both parties in my life. So I'm, I'm not just one or the other. I'm, 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 anyway, but the thing is, the, the problem is they, they, they tout themselves as the non-governmental party, meaning small government, right? Private industry, capitalism. So that's why he's, he's parading up all these CEOs every day because they can't, you know, they can't go and make something nationalized because if they do, that becomes like part of their arch enemy, which is FDR from the 30s mm -hmm. and 40s, right? Mm -hmm. Who saved the country. I like it or not. Right. Well, it, but don't you think that in this pandemic, which is uh, the size of an apocalypse, that we need the infrastructure that needs to be addressed here? Oh, I here. think we do. I'm too, it has to be on a national yes, level and it has yes, to be but... fast. And the only resources, the only governing tool is the military to distribute those resources fast. Is that about even the, the manufacturing? I mean, we are importing things from China, masks and gowns. 
with dealing with the customs and listen, uh, listen and price on a basic gouging. level. Okay, but listen on a basic level, the job of the government is to protect its citizens, and right now its citizens are dying. Mm-hmm. So, however it gets done, and whatever you have to cut through, like the Gordian knot needs to be cut in half. You have to cut through it, and we have to figure out what to do. Yeah, and I'm. You know, and that's where we have to. I don't care what the politics are. And I, I look, I'm a registered Democrat. I voted Democrat 90 percent of it my whole life. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that. But so but if it, I don't care who's in office, they have to solve at least the basic situation of what you're talking. Yeah, and about. I think you're right about to. from what I was listening to on the news. Trump had floated this idea that he may just have to put people back to work, you know, to save the economy. And that really didn't pick up traction. And apparently today he retracted that. He basically said something opposing that, which is that to have a healthy economy, you have to have a healthy population yeah. because people Absolutely. are not going to want to go back to work. And I think he today finally got that yeah message. he keeps bouncing so. back and forth changing minds and denying what he said before when, when you he when you elect a reality show and then he, he retraces to a presidency what do you expect yeah to be honest with you yeah, right good point and look i you know i don't care what people say again i i don't make my politics you know often public but i'm a new yorker he's a new yorker He's been a con man forever. This is no surprise to any New Yorker what's happening right now. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's One very New important to, to say that we feel left behind, really, with the state of lacking, you know, basic uh, help that he has been ignoring the needs of New and York State. And we are the epicenter. Like this and is, we are the new yeah, epicenter of the world. I mean, the numbers uh, speak uh, for itself. We've veered off talking about American nomads, and I'm going to announce yeah, the closing did. song. Can I just uh, say sure. one anecdotal uh, story, which was that I was at the post office today, is related to the, you know, mm-hmm. what we're going through. And one of the post, off- post office officer, what do you call it? Postal officer. Anyway, he was saying, so a lot of the post offices are closing down and that's partly due because the workers don't want to show up and they're taking their sick days and they're taking a lot of other days that they're um, allowed to take. I don't know that I've never seen their contract clearly, whatever. But I said, oh, they're taking sick days. And he's like, yeah, but they're taking a lot of other ones. They're staying home because they they have kids. They have family. They don't want to get this thing. They're scared. And so the consequence is. The post offices are closing. I'm not saying all of them are. The one I went to this morning was open, but will it be open next week? This is the kind of uncertainty that's quite, you know, scary. To- well, yeah, it's the, it's the basic. I mean, the thing, you know, uh, it's the basic thing through sleet or snow or whatever will close the post office down. But, you know, this pandemic is closing it down. Mm-hmm. And the re- I even read that they, they don't know if they could financially survive after this, the post office. Oh, my God. Because it's partially private as well, if, oh, I, if yeah. I'm correct. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just uh, wanted to quickly touch on a couple of references, if, if, if we may. Do. Sure. Can, can we, Rebecca? Yeah, like to, to, to uh, leave this... Um, program yeah, on a lighter note and not yes let's, uh, go, let's back go back to your work like and talk about your work uh, <laughs> you know some of the because i've been looking through my notes and it's been, you know you're really a very prolific artist with so many t- disciplines that you're digesting through and weaving in and then you deny those disciplines you say you're you're not a conceptual artist you're not a minimalist artist you don't talk about narrative but then you are using those tools and you're partly this. It's a constellation of 
composite of, of different identities that you are representing. And I was actually, I couldn't help myself, especially uh, in the context of the eight tide of credence, yeah. which was based on the, the same river twice. So let's go back to yeah. Karachi, Pakistan for a little bit. I found okay. that where you actually use the narration and the literature, the stories that were sent. I really wonder like, if you could share some of the stories that you read. Have you read them all? Is that part of the concept or are well, they all, so all here's, anonymous? Here's the they, they came through the Biennale Committee and they were already uh, converted to Urdu. Okay. So I got an overview of the stories themselves, meaning like, you know, like translated. a lot of it is found. Right, a lot. Right, a lot of it's family oriented, but it also it's not new. If we're if we're going to take that for a second, uh, I did a, a series called uh, "The Songbird Sings of Home," where I took stories from people from around the world, people I've known in my travels, and asked them to write stories to me of their childhood in the language that they grew up speaking, and then they were they converted those to English for me. So it's a very similar kind of thing, right? And in that people are you know. Some of it's a political stories of Pakistan. Some of it is personal. Some of it's religion. Some of right. it. So I got I got stories from all different kinds of, of points of view. Right, mm-hmm. and then you, so you use politics as the tool, but you speak through it, right? Would you like you use a political moment nice, or a narrative? Very nice way of putting it. Yeah, like the same river twice is not political at all. That's a true. These are books that I read. Inspiration. That's about the you know the quest, right? The hero's journey. Uh, out from small town to big city and back again. That's what that's like, right? But and that right. that goes back to you know, uh, hero with a thousand faces. But sometimes it's politically oriented. But to me, it was less politics right. and still about the idea of ideas flowing down the river, like you know, the tide of credence flowing right. down the river. And that work reminds and, me you of know, the... and gathering. Right. And that reminds me of the uh, another uh, very small work, Salt and the Earth, that you uh, oh, yeah, presented yeah. at the Ethan Petty Gallery in May 2012. Yeah, and Ethan, uh, that was at an auction for a, a Brooklyn benefit, and Ethan purchased it and then right, it uh, exhibited of, it at his gallery. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was Ethan, a, a Wagmag yeah, benefit. A it was a Wagmag benefit raffle. Exactly. And yeah. he purchased it. The raffle tickets were $200 each. Right, so some of the mechanisms that you're using evoke the Onkawara's work for me. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking about the series that he did, that he presented at the Guggenheim uh, Museum, because I looked at this uh, exhibit before in 2015. I got up, I went, and I met that were presented at Guggenheim Museum. And in this series, uh, he recorded some of his daily activities movements and encounters for a period of nearly, well, this is like 12 years. I wonder how long it took you to, like, you know, take all of the excerpts from the books, uh, you know, to the same river twice. The artist takes 12 years to trace movements on a given day and uh, create these maps and lists from names that he, of people that he encountered each day. And then he would, like, mail postcards to to these people with their addresses. So uh, I I don't know if you're familiar with the you know Onkawara is obviously. Oh yeah, another. actually I showed with him. I showed with him in uh, Lapland up in Rovaniemi. Um, God, I don't know how I mean, 2003, so quite a long time ago. 
true conceptualist, you know, uh, big inspiration for me when I was younger. And, um, you know, uh, so somebody was, I, I look okay. up to as an artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, not when I was younger. I'm saying, like, it's hard to say as an artist because you're always developing, always growing, always taking things and discarding things. And he was something like it's not too dissimilar than the Borowski that I mentioned in terms of like the timing, you know, like creating your own time frame is what he did as well. Uh, his work. Um, but like to tie in with what I did there too, when you asked about how long it takes to do and where, where it's to come from uh, during the exhibition I did at, at Lance Fung in 2000 called Evidence of My Being, which was my second solo show with him, I did a piece called Curriculum Vitae, um, where I took everything that was ever written about me in my entire life, my birth certificate, my passport, my driver's license, and I destroyed them with a razor blade. I cut out every word that was ever written about me. Then I cut it letter by letter. And it took me about a year and a half to do this from my studio and from hotel rooms when I was traveling. I cut up my high school diploma, my college diploma, and I filled up a glass urn with all everything ever written about me up until that exhibition. And so in Curriculum Vitae, everything ever written about me would equal my body weight had I been cremated. It's the idea of like the letters, the words creating the individual. And it happened to equal the volume and weight of my body uh, if I had been cremated. Right. Mm, That's really very poignant. Um, Yeah, I think we've been talking for a while. It didn't feel like that at all because it was so interesting. And there's so much to, you know, unpack and delve into your work. There's so many different uh, narratives, really. Each piece has such a backstory to it that it's pretty complicated in its own way and 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 quite different from the other piece. So each piece has to really be explored and discussed to its fullest to understand it um, at least, you know, adequately, right? So clearly, we're not going to ask you about your upcoming project because it's everything's at a standstill. So we're, we're you know, we're not going to leave no. it on that note. But we're glad you're in a safe space. We're safe. We're right now wearing masks in Great. the studio. Yes. We're, wearing, right, we're, wearing, right, right. we're wearing masks and gloves. And, um, you know, so far, we're fine. And um, yeah, my, my next project is putting a fire up in the wood burning stove. That's right. As far as I get. Yeah, and I today. think that as artists, because um, I'm an artist and Isabel is also an artist. And I yeah. think that everyone, not just us as artists, but we should look at the positives. Like we have more time on our hands. We can be productive within that. And we do have to, you know, allow ourselves time for worry because worrying is a natural response to a, um, dangerous situation. So worrying is is a form of planning. So I'm not telling people don't worry and be happy, but like maybe we can, you know, plan for that. So schedule worry time and then also just productive time because it's also really important. It's a part of mental health, well-being and maintaining a positive outlook and being productive in our own way. So for myself, I'm trying to think about ways that I can maybe do all those things that I wanted to do and I didn't have time to, like maybe I should make those drawings and uh, organize my uh, artwork and archive and all those types of things. I'm, I'm trying to do the same. I've been, I've been thinking about archiving, which I do on a regular basis, but also I've been, I've you know, been writing a book. I sent you guys a couple paragraphs and uh, a couple uh, um, right. chapters. Of yes. It. I wanted to and, touch and so, on that. You know, I've, I've been kind of editing that and, you know, just taking the time where, 
when do you normally have a time to do this unless it's midnight, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been taking a couple hours during the day and going back and tightening things up for the yeah, book. Yeah, just very so. quickly, the four short stories that you sent, because it's not like sitting still, you're working, you said you're writing and that you were actually writing every day. And, yeah, uh, and the, you know, you're editing the book. Some of the, your stories that you're going to publish are Drunken, Cannibal, Helsinki, <laughs> uh, 2010, Venice. So th they carry titles of places you went to. They are like sort of vignettes of the surreal, you know, uh, landscapes that you create eventually, that you transgress through your imagination. Yeah, these are all, they're all true stories, but they're written... Right. Uh, they're written like just from my point of view in the story, right? So right. some of the facts aren't always right. The, the, the working title of the book right now is Sick, S-I-C, right, in brackets, mm -hmm. which is like, mm -hmm. you know, the notation you make when something is misspelled or incorrectly written. And that's kind of like what it's about. These are my memories of the events, of mm -hmm. what's happened. You right. Know? So those are like... And I'm just I'm jumping through. The, all the stories of my life. So like those are like excerpts uh, from your biography, memories, observations from yes. daily life. And yes. uh, you blend that with fiction and you come up with these very dense, uh, surreal oh, no, no, it's vignettes. It's all, there's, no, there's no fiction there. It's, it's, it's everything I wrote. I mean, I, I, I referenced like in the first story, I referenced mm -hmm. Moby Dick because I'm just tying it in as a, as a metaphor to my life during that time. But everything there is real. That's real. Those are real stories of my life. It's a bi it's an autobiography. And uh, just one, uh, because I read some of the, uh, a couple of those that you sent over, and just on the like finishing note, I, I kind of like this. Uh, uh, for the for the time being, from the story Helsinki from uh, 2010, I've been told that you're. I've been told that you're not considered crazy if you talk to yourself. You're only crazy if you start answering yourself back. I thought that was really funny. I've been, I've been, I've been having full conversations with myself these past few weeks. <laughs> And I think well, that, that, that maybe happens. we might be doing that more and more since we're going to be spending more time by maybe with our loved ones, but in certainly in isolation, right? That's what a lot of us are facing. So that's very well, that, And that happened to me. I, I was staying there in Helsinki. It was the darkness of January. I, I sold a piece to Nokia, actually two pieces to Nokia. And so I like, there was enough budget for me to fly over and I stayed at my friend's apartment. They were up, up north in Tampere. They own a farm up there. And I was staying in their apartment for a bunch of weeks in the darkness of, you know, using it as time to write and do my artwork. But I was going insane because there was nothing there. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. I'd walk the streets and talk to myself and answer myself back out loud mm -hmm. <laughs> most of the time. And then I, then I, I've never watched, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I turned on the TV at seven in the morning and SpongeBob was on in English. And I was like, every day I made it my habit to watch SpongeBob every day. So if 40 we, minutes of sanity. If we... Um, talk to ourselves and then answer ourselves back. It's okay. And we're not losing our minds. We're just coping with isolation <laughs> because we're exactly. all going to be, we're all, we're all in it now. We're all going to be going back to our places and, you know, yeah, you know for the most part, isolating. So um, I also just want to um, say to our listeners that, um, and I tell this to everyone, like all my friends, I'm like, uh, vitamin C pusher or something like that, which I'm not, it's a suggestion, but it's really important to maintain a healthy immune system right now. And uh, vitamin C is, can be a really important part of that. Just really simple. You can buy it in, you know, drop, you know, what do you call it? Like um, capsule gel. lozenges Capsules. and candy right. even and 
pill form. I have so, a whole stash of vitamins and K and D3 <laughs> and potassium, magnesium, zinc. Yeah, you know, I, I, of, do, I do too. I'm a, I'm a vegetarian for 20 years, so it's important <laughs> that I always supplement. So I'm, I have I've been really, and everything. I've been really disciplined about that. This it's, has been so amazing. It's been so enlightening and really great to like have a long and depth conversation. It's been a while. <laughs> I, I guess we have the, need, the very basic you. human need to, uh, to, you know, engage with yeah. each other and you know to to digest through concept not to just focus on the very harsh reality of life right now but to just take our mind away for a moment and maybe you know we did go over time but i think it's an emergency and this is ways that we can live through it is to digest through this and talk about it uh, together together actually i, I have think that's one the way. last question your name is it uh your given name or is it a yeah, it's real oh, okay no it's real humanism and do, humanizing do people ask you that has anyone else oh, since you? i was a child of course i mean no because it can it, also it can also be like uh not a stage name but something like that like a um adopted name or something you know non the plume no oh, it's, cool, it's definitely cool. it's, uh, it's a cool it, name it's it, it would probably be in german human my family my father's family's from germany okay. uh but here we pronounce it okay. human and and uh but they could trace it back the family like it's literally like a thousand years so like 1063 or something like that you know back mm-hmm. well you so, are you are human <laughs> yeah it's funny because my friends you know who lived in berlin they're like one day he's like he went to this park and he's like sitting there and he's like it, it was human plots it was my name with plots ah. he took a photo it's like ah there you nice. go See? okay i'm um, gonna go there one day so we can't thank you, thank you so you much enough. this has been so amazing Thank, and thank you guys too. It was wonderful. And I will be back to New York. I'll be back soon to Brooklyn and, and I probably won't see it this time, but we will definitely get together. Yeah. Afterwards. And I think, uh, can you, you have a website, right? Can you, well, we'll yes. put it on, uh, also in the, um, in the credits. So people can go to your website and keep up to date with all of your new projects, which I'm going to have to up, I'm going to have to keep it up to date now because, yeah. you know, like an artist website. I'm, well, I'm now you have time. Now, yes. now you have all the yes, time I in do. the world. And, uh, That's correct. <laughs> thank you so much for so joining guys, us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Isabella, Rebecca. Thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, seeing you guys in person one day. Again. Yeah, so. yes. yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Thank you for joining us in this very strange time. And we are going to end our 14th segment with American Nomad's song, who already was uh, played in our segment before when we interviewed the Royal Gallery founders and curators. Uh, so we are uh, going to play American Nomad's through the badlands which is very much relevant to the harsh times we are living in right now and those landscapes that uh, we are seeing in our spirits and and around in our uh, neighborhood but this song is about uh, inner struggle with addictions and temptations alcohol drugs sex very very rock and roll richard i wrote i i I wrote this so these are all my (laughs) lyrics i wrote it as a kind of like a blues song and it turned into like the spiritual thing and and uh i'm not you know to be honest i'm i'm an atheist but you know you take a character you take a role and i drew the badlands was like this idea of like 
you know, swam the lake of fire and, you know, defiant of the four riders of the apocalypse, you know, the horsemen. And so that's how I took it. And it's a spiritual journey in a way, you know, fighting addiction and everything we have to fight as human beings. Yeah, we talked and about the background of the American nomads. And I didn't say enough about our intro song, which I just touched on very briefly. That was Listen, uh, Brother, yeah. Listen Brother by yes. Inca Mars. And that was from an unreleased album. And it will be released the, soon, actually. So it's we Susan are the first ones and really LaGrange and myself. to play ever. it publicly play ever, it. which is very exciting. Ooh, the first exciting. song. Yep. So just to touch on that and the album that will be released, this uh, narrative is talking about the voluntary incarceration that we are all going through. I mean, it, well, it could I'll, relate. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a it could relate to the incarceration that we are actually going through right now in the state of pandemic COVID-19 and the song that we were listening to is about two lovable town drunk named Otis, named Otis. in the show yes and um, in, uh, in, yes in, uh, in, in the end the whole entire album is based on the Andy Griffith show and it's based on like the day before the Beatles come to America in 1964 to play the Ed Sullivan show and how things change And so the whole concept album is based on that. And the song Listen Brother is about Otis the Drunk and Barney Fife, who they have this, you know, energy between them that's not always good. But ultimately, he takes care of them in, in, uh, in, in the jail cell. And Otis goes every night. And when he drinks, he puts himself in the jail cell every night to sleep it off voluntarily. And so that's why I thought it would be good to send you guys now. And basically, Otis in our jail cells at this point. Great. And yeah. we are closing with Through the Badlands by American Nomads. So let's go back to alcohol, drugs and sex as a distraction. Exactly. And, you know, it's about the darker side of life, but uh, I think it's also about the struggle to come to life, to come to light through, uh, you know, through the dark times. Uh, Richard, thank you again. It's been really wonderful to have you and to yes, talk you. about your concepts in depth. and. Thank you so much. Isabella, Rebecca, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I, I again, I look forward to seeing you guys in person and, and, stay uh, and well. going out one night to an opening together. Yeah, that'd be cool. And uh, stay well, everyone out there. Uh, be safe be and virus-free. <laughs> thank you so yeah, much for joining. Be healthy. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, bye now. Well, I traveled through the badlands Wrestled Satan in the night Yes, I travel through the bad land Wrestle Satan in the night To break from this temptation Takes every ounce of mine Well, I travel through the bad land Wrestle Satan in the night
Yes, I travel through the bad lane 